Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. We are in a series that we're just calling The Birds and the Bees. And yes, we are talking about the birds and the bees. I think everybody understands what that means, but I know actually recently that not everybody knows what that phrase means. So we are talking about Christian sexuality and how that fits in with our modern culture that we live in, how we recognize what the Bible has to say, how we live out the values of what the Bible has to say, and how we do that in a way that actually brings glory to God first and foremost, but also is a sweet aroma and a fragrance to the world that we're living in that draws people into the household of faith. And so that's where we're going over the next six weeks. And really what I want to just lovingly encourage all of you parents in the room is we're trying to be very cautious with what's being uh, given to your kids from the pulpit, especially. And so if you have kids age 13 and younger, would just lovingly invite you that this message this week and next week, we are talking specifically on God's design for sex as it belongs in marriage. And next week, we'll be talking about the counterfeit versions that the world has to offer that the world is telling us is normative and okay. And so of all the PG-13 messages, these two weeks are the most PG-13. Let me maybe say it that way. We're going to be very uh, detailed today. We're going to be no more explicit than the Bible is, but we will look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and then we'll bounce over to Song of Solomon chapter 4. If you know Song of Solomon, that is their honeymoon night. That is the night where they're walking into the hotel room after their wedding. Raise your hand if you're preaching this message in front of your parents and your in-laws right now. (laughs) Just me? Great hey, let's do this. Let's pray, shall we? (laughs) Lord, help us. Lord, help me. Be with me. But honestly, Lord, tenderly today, I know as as we bring up this message, there is, there's maybe a bit of discomfort in the room just because we're afraid of what's going to happen, afraid of where this is going to go. And God, I pray that your comfort would rest in this place that we'd be faithful to your scripture, that we'd be faithful to the love and the grace and the forgiveness that you offer to all of us in this room. There's not one person in this room who is detached from or not having personally experienced some sort of sexual brokenness in some way. And so God, I pray that you would come and that your Holy Spirit would be in this place as we open your word faithfully together today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Let me remind you of our couple ground rules for this series. Uh, This series is for each of us personally. We're listening for ourselves, right? So spouses today especially, you just, you keep your elbows to yourself. No, hey, listen, that was a good point. Write that down. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. The Holy Spirit works in us personally. Wives, I know you think you sound a lot like the Holy Spirit. And my wife, honestly, she does sound like a lot like the Holy Spirit a lot of days. But you can't be the Holy Spirit for the person sitting next to you. And so we are listening to receive personally today. The second ground rule is that we are looking forward especially as we dive into the topic this morning, I know, I'm aware of who I'm preaching to right now. I'm preaching to married people for sure, but I'm also, even in that context, I'm I'm preaching to people who are happily married and and things are just clicking and things are firing and things are really good. And and I'm preaching to people who are married who are having a tough time right now. And I'm I'm not gonna make light of that this morning. I'm praying that this morning is helpful for you. I know I'm preaching to single people who, single people all over the spectrum, people who were married at one point, people who have yet to be married. I know I'm, I'm not speaking to 400 virgins right now. I'm well aware of that fact. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna try to be thoughtful and we're gonna try to apply principles so that everybody, everybody who lives in a world full of sexual brokenness can take some things, can glean some things from this morning and apply it to their life as the Holy Spirit leads, okay? 
And so that's how I want us to focus today. And what we're going to do is we're going to start by opening up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, you can open that up. Uh, it'll be on the screen if you don't have one with you. I, 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 I'm going to be honest. I'm basically trying to preach two sermons at once this morning. So we're going to go a couple different directions, and it might be a little bit lengthier than usual, but I'll try to hold your attention the whole time because we're talking about a topic that's I mean, it's pretty interesting. Let's be honest, right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me set the groundwork before we just read into it. Paul is responding to some sort of letter. He's responding to either an inquiry that, that the people, that there's a church in a city called Corinth, and somehow Paul helped start this church. He was there at the inception of this church, and he's gone off to do other missionary work. And along that journey somehow, he's either heard about, somebody's written him a letter, they have questions, they're, uh, they're acknowledging some things that are happening in the church, and Paul is now responding with the letter of 1 Corinthians back to them. So, I mean, you can only imagine this kind of modern context. This would be like, uh, Corinth would probably be a lot like a church in the middle of either LA or Manhattan. Kind of this cultural epicenter of the, of the known world where it is. A lot of economic resources happening there. There's a lot of different idolatry and a lot of different pagan worship that's going on. You could think of Corinth in a lot of ways like you could think of LA today. Where the culture makers, the culture movers live in this city. It is kind of setting the tone for the world around it. And there's a lot of brokenness in this city. To the point where um, we know a lot of sexual brokenness in our world today, I wonder if we understand fully the amount of brokenness that was happening in Corinth at this time. There, there are temples, ancient Greek gods that are dedicated to, to the area of sex and romance. And there are temple prostitutes, thousands of them, that at night would come into the city to fulfill their acts of worship. So it's dark, it's heavy, and yet people are coming to know the Lord. There, there's, this, like, there's this move of God that's happening in this city. And much like in the world that we live in today, there are things that the church is struggling to comprehend. There are lies that they're believing about the culture around them that they have to, Paul, Paul has to correct them. I, I don't, listen, I don't pretend to know all the kind of sexual brokenness that exists even in this room today, but Paul has to write specifically like, hey, you're having sex with your stepmom and that needs to stop. Like, that's intense, isn't it? Can we all just agree? Can we all just level like that this morning? And so Paul's writing to a broken church in the same way that he was writing to Corinth back then, he's writing to a broken church today. We have our own issues in this room. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's left unscathed by this topic. And so Paul has some lies that he's addressing that we're gonna address on the front end. So before we even talk about God's design for sex, what are the, what are the cultural lies that we believe? First Corinthians chapter six, starting in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me. Notice that's in quotes. All things are lawful for me. He's, he's quoting somebody who has inquired about him. Hey, is this okay? Is this permissible? Are we allowed to do this now under the new covenant of grace in Jesus? He says, notice all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. <clears throat> all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The first argument that Paul's trying to address with the church in Corinth is that you cannot live with a detachment of what's happening in your life spiritually and what you're doing physically. See, Corinth has this issue kind of reconciling these two thoughts as they have now received the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in their city. They've come to put their faith in Jesus, their people being saved. Now what they're struggling with is they're struggling to detach what's happening in them spiritually with what's happening in culture physically. So there's all these sexual normatives that are going on. There's all these things that we would recognize easily as, as broken, as dark, as wicked. And yet it's crept its way into the church. And, and that, listen to me, I know that's happening today. Not just our church, but churches everywhere. 
Like we have a hard time detaching what God is doing in us spiritually. And for some reason, we're able to draw this line to say, no, this is my church life. This is how I act when I'm at church. This is when I'm around other Christians, when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm praying, I do this. But physically, God's not as interested in what's happening with my body over here. And Paul's writing to say, hey, your body belongs to the Lord. Listen, just as much as last week we asked the question, um, are you going to choose to listen to what the Bible has to say? This week we're going to ask the question, are you going to live to gratify the desires of your flesh or are you going to live to glorify the Lord? That's the question every single person has to ask. You do not get to live in a way where you get to say, I'm going to act like this Monday through Saturday. And then on church, I'm going to come and I'm going to do my spiritual things. Jesus is not interested in a compartmentalized version of your life like that. He wants you to surrender to him fully. And so the way that we live with our body, this goes beyond just sex. The way that we steward our body's health, the way that we eat, the way that we care for ourselves, all of that, we have to recognize that this is a temple for the Lord. And yes, the stomach was made for food, the food, food, and food was made for the stomach, but sexual immorality, we have to recognize that God cohabitates in our body. And so we cannot have this disconnected brokenness. It is so prevalent in culture today. Or we just say, well, you just, if it feels good, do it. And just do whatever, whatever you want to do, whatever the feelings are, whatever the desires are, just, just do those. And Paul's writing to say, absolutely not. Recognize first and foremost, church, that the way that you carry about your, the actions of your body matters to God. You cannot have this detachment. That's lie number one. Lie number two, as we go on to read verse 14, it says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Probably what was happening in the church of Corinth is some of them are getting caught up in this temple worship where they're actually sleeping with prostitutes in the city. And they're saying, oh, it's, it's, just, it's just bodies on bodies. It's just skin on skin. It's just a physical act. Again, they're trying to draw this line. It's just something I'm doing with my body. It's not something that matters with my spirituality. And it says, no, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. What Paul's acknowledging here is that sex is not just a physical activity. And that's the other lie that we're told in our culture today. Uh, hey, it's just a physical activity. It's just like kissing. It's just like hugging. No, it's not. Uh, you know this is true because like, listen, I, I don't want to brag or anything. I was in a fight in third grade, okay? <laughs> me and Michael Cochran got in a little scuff on the football field one day and he pushed me and I pushed him back and I pushed him back well and he kind of got caught up on a kid who was on the ground. He fell over. So yeah, I won that fight that day, right? <laughs> it was awesome. You know that sex is different than just physical pain because sexual pain hurts a lot more than that, doesn't it? Like sexual brokenness is so much more tender. And I, I know I'm speaking to people right now and you maybe never have come out about this, but there has been problems of abuse. There's been problems of people who have stolen something from you, taken something from you, done something. And that hurts more than just getting punched in the face, doesn't it? And so it's not just physical contact. There's there, like in Hebrew, the word for two souls becoming one, it's like, it's this co-mingling of souls that happens when you're having sex with someone. It's more, here's, here's how Eugene Peterson writes it when he writes the message. He says, sex is more than mere skin on skin. It's as much spiritual mystery as it is physical fact where the two become one. There's this co-mingling of souls when you're intimate with someone like that. 
you know that like there's these soul ties, there's this thing, there's this intimacy that's brought forth in a way that is hard to just detach as if you just broke up with someone that you never did that with. Right? And even within the church, I think it is commonplace for parents, you hear this kind of advice all the time where it's like, well, just sleep around a little bit before you get married. How are you going to know what you're going to like if you don't just try a few other things? Listen, if you're wanting to feel experimental in the things that your body does before you get married, try hockey. <laughs> uh, I mean, go play ping pong for a little bit. Like that is just a physical sport. But when you start getting intimate in this way, that exposes, it opens up your soul. It opens up your heart in a way that is, that is not just physical. It is a spiritual mystery that is drawing two people together as well. So that's lie number two. The third lie is we read on in verse 19. I'm sorry, let's go to verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's lie number three, is that sexual sin is just like any other sin and God will forgive me and there's no consequences to it. Now let's nuance that just a little bit because will God forgive all sin? Absolutely, absolutely. All sin is forgiven by God the same way on the cross of Jesus Christ. Even if you're sitting in here today and you're bringing in some sense of shame, some sense of embarrassment from something you've done, I just wanna remind you today that we are all in the exact same need of the cross of Jesus Christ, of his blood cleansing us, restoring us, making us stand righteously before God. There is no sin that is worse than or ickier than any other sin. It's all sin. All sin has caused us to fall short of God's standard. And so the only way that we're reconciled back to him is by the grace and blood of Jesus Christ. And... To say that sexual sin is no different than other sin, Paul's disagreeing with you right here. Now, what he's saying is that sexual sin brings about a certain kind of consequence that other sin that you don't commit against your own body doesn't bring. What he's acknowledging here is that sexual sin, it has a way of, of grabbing us. It grabs us quickly. It takes control of our life quickly. And so his recommendation is not stand there and fight it. He said, don't, don't gird yourself up with the, with, the, with, the, with the armor of God and stand in there and fight. He says, no, flee. Flee, run from it, get out of there because you are going to give in to that temptation. It is going to try to beat you up. It is going to try to overtake you. And so he says, flee from it, detach from it. Why? Because bodily sin controls us pretty quickly. You hear all the time in the world that we're living in today. Well, I, like I'm free. You don't, church doesn't get to tell me what to do. Bible doesn't get to tell me what to do. I'm free. Let me ask you this. People who are caught up in this kind of behavior, can you stop? I would challenge, like I would press in on anybody. You're caught looking at porn. You're caught going from this app to that app, trying to go from hookup to hookup. And you're just so desperate, so hungry. And it's like, well, I could stop at any time. I'm just, it's just me. I'm being free. I'm expressing myself the way I want to. Really? Could you stop at any time? Here's, here's the honest answer. No, you can't. So are you free? You're not free. This is where the Bible teaches a different kind of freedom. Freedom is only found in submission to the spirit. Ah, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? that the only path that we're gonna to have to freedom is by letting Jesus take control, by surrendering our life over to him. So if you wanna get free from the harm that comes from sexual sin, if you wanna get free from the control that comes from sexual sin, it's only found in Jesus, friends. It's only found in Jesus. The consequences of sexual sin, the consequences of sin committed against your own bodily, we know this, they're costly. They're costly. Yes, praise God, Jesus will forgive us, but we know that they stick in a different kind of way than other sins that we do. 
I, I don't remember the last time I got mad at someone who cut me off and I thought a mean thought to somebody, which Jesus says, by the way, is the same as committing murder in your heart. So like, yeah, I've murdered tons of people when I'm driving, right? <laughs> I can forget about those. But the mistakes that I've made sexually, the, the brokenness that I've experienced in this personally, that, that sticks with me a little differently. And it does for you too. And so we know that it, it harms inevitably. It, it is costly. It controls us quickly. Sexual, sexual sin is not just like every other sin. It harms the body in a, in a distinct way. So those are the first few lies that we see about sex. And the question then kind of goes to, well, then what does, what does the Bible say about sex? And he answers it for us in chapter 7. So if you just continue on, there were no chapter breaks initially when they got this letter. They would have just read on to chapter 7, starting in verse 1. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So here he's, again, responding to a question that's been put forth to him. Someone's asking him, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? And then he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You know what's crazy is in the church, we've so elevated the role of marriage in the church. But Paul, what he's going to consistently do is he's going to elevate the role of singleness. And he's going to say, but if you can't live this lifestyle, then you should get married. And we'll talk about that for you single people coming up in a couple weeks, that you are not, you are not insufficient or inadequate without a spouse. Otherwise, you're talking about Paul, Jeremiah, Jesus himself would have been inadequate and insufficient because they were never married, never had sex, right? So here we go. What does it mean to be in a sexual relationship according to the Bible? It means that you are in a covenant relationship with someone of the opposite sex. So marriage then is reserved for a man and a woman who exchange in a covenant commitment to one another, who stand up in front of their friends someday and they say, man, you know what? For better or for worse, in sickness and in health, in rich and in poor, until death do us part, I thee wed. Right now, Maybe you didn't say those vows exactly when you got married, but my, my point is, is I heard a pastor even this week saying the baseline floor for sexual engagement in our culture is that it's consensual, which we go, yeah, okay, it, it absolutely should be consensual. And then he goes to say, but you know what? The Bible elevates having committed sexual relationships. And I'm like, yeah, of course we should have committed sexual relationships, but he stopped one short. And I bring that up just to say, you can't always even trust what's just coming out of pulpits at this point. There are churches who have this ethic broken. No, God's vision for anyone who's having sex, sex with anyone else is for those who not just are in a consensual relationship or a committed relationship, but who have entered into a covenantal relationship with one another. Well, they've said, I am with you. That is so, so important that we have this commitment. There should be this security that comes from being in a marriage bed. And so the, the question that my mind naturally went to as I was writing this sermon goes to this. Okay, so then what does, what does biblical sex actually look like? Because there's actually a chapter in your Bible that addresses it pretty clearly and we're gonna jump right over to it. You just wanna go ahead and, you know, sit back down, find your seats, put your seatbelt back on, tray tables in their upright position. We're going over to Song of Solomon, chapter four. Okay, flip on over there, flip on over. Song of Solomon, chapter four. Some context for this book now. Song of Solomon is written by King Solomon. King Solomon probably wrote somewhere around a thousand songs. And so some of, your, some of the headings in your Bible are gonna say Song of Songs. Others say Song of Solomon. What it's saying is of all the songs he wrote, this is the song. This is the song of all his songs. This is the pinnacle. This is what it's unfolding for us in Song of Solomon. Six chapter book. It's, it's just this potent book where we see uh, Solomon fall in love with the Shulamite maiden. They fall in love, they, they meet each other, they, they have this wonderful courtship then that they enter into. So they meet each other, they fall in love, they, they start courting each other, they, uh, almost like what we consider dating would look like. 
Then they get engaged and then they get married. Their marriage ceremony is in chapter three. You can read about it. Solomon's got all these, he's got like 60 groomsmen standing up there with him. They got swords. It just sounds epic and awesome as you could only imagine Solomon's wedding would be, right? So now chapter, listen, up until this point of the book, up until chapter four, verse one, she has said 75% of all the verses. And that is a sermon for a different day. <laughs> but in chapter four, here's what we have. It's right after the marriage ceremony. This is, this is the wedding night. They have checked into the hotel. And this is what we're going to read. It says, behold, Solomon speaking to her. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Solomon likely has not seen her eyes yet. They have been veiled up until now. And so what's happening is she's taking her veil off. And he just is starting at the top. Listen to me, men, I'm trying to save your life this Tuesday. Tuesday's Valentine's Day. If you don't have that on your calendar, just go ahead and get it out right now and circle it, okay? I'm just trying to save lives up here. That's all I'm trying to do. <laughs> Solomon's gonna talk for 11 verses before he even touches her. You want some tips for Valentine's Day? Boys, just listen, write that down. Write that down real quick. Talking for 11 verses before he even touches her. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Don't write that down. Let me explain. <laughs> it would have been custom for her, the Shulamite, at this Jewish wedding ceremony to have her hair pinned up. And so what Solomon is saying, he's saying, your, your hair is like a flock of goats. There were these black haired goats on the hills of Gilead and they would run down. And so what's happening is literally she's, Taking her hair out. She's letting her hair go down, okay? This is your Bible, everybody. I'm not making this up. Verse two, he says, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear their twins and not one among them has lost its young. You know what he's saying there? You have all your teeth. It's beautiful. Your smile's beautiful. It's amazing. He's just starting at the top, working his way down. Like, let, me, let me go with your mouth. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Read verse four. This one's interesting. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, shields all of them shields of warriors. He, he's not saying she has a long neck, okay? Just for the record. He's not saying, ah, oh, it's a very giraffe-like, you know? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, he's like, just the way you carry yourself, you hold your head high. Like you, you come in and you just kind of command a certain level of respect. Honestly, this is one of the favorite things that I have about my wife is that she just walks into a room and she holds her head high. She, she's not looking down. She's not letting other people define what she's gonna feel or how she's gonna take. She, no, she comes in strong. And he's saying, man, just the Tower of David would have been the, this place of honor, this place of distinguishment in the city. And he's saying, just the way that you carry yourself into a room, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. Notice this, that Solomon's wife, his bride, even by her own admission earlier on in the Song of Solomon, she actually has a lot of insecurities about her appearance. She says, I'm not that impressive to look at. She's kind of like, I've made this trade. Like I've, I've chosen labor over protecting and stewarding my body well. She's like, my skin is dark. And that, it's not like I've been to the tanning salon before we got married, right? What she's saying is like, no, I've been out in the field. I've been working. I'm not much to look at. And so notice that Song of Solomon, the first thing he does before he ever touches her, he just starts affirming her. He starts looking at her and he's like, no, you're beautiful. And he just works his way down. The first thing that you gotta know about godly sex is that it's affirming. It's affirming. It should always be affirming before it gets physical. And so women, what men typically want to hear is they wanna be affirmed in what they do. 
They want to be affirmed in, in how they behave and the things that they've accomplished. They want to be noticed in that way. Women typically love to be affirmed in who they are, their value towards you, your, their identity, like the things that you see that are beautiful and rich and lovely and not just in a visual way, but they want to hear how they mean to you. Men usually are, are ready to engage in sex based on what they see. Women are ready to engage in sex based on what they hear. God has wired us, and this is tends to, okay? Tends to be. This is not perfect for everyone. But what, it, what I'm trying to say is God has wired us distinctly and differently, and that's actually for our good. It's a, it's a good, right thing. But notice how Song, Solomon, he just goes and he starts affirming her. It, it should not be this thing where it just is like, hey, honey, you, want, you wanna? You wanna? No, he puts some work in. He starts going and he starts acknowledging Hey, you're beautiful. I love this thing about you. I love this about you. you I, this is this thing. You're beautiful. I love you. Do you hear the affirmation that's happening before he even lays a hand on her? Godly sex is affirming. Next point. It's found in one verse. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Okay. Just got a little more real, didn't it? Hunters in the room. Hunters in the room. You know what, song is, what Solomon's talking about right now. Listen, if you come up on a scene when you're hunting and you've got these like two deer just like chilling in a meadow, you don't come busting into that scene. Am I right? You're careful. You're cautious. You're tender. You're careful. This, this is the second thing about godly sex. Godly sex is tender. It's thoughtful. Solomon is not looking at her as if she's something to be consumed. He's tender towards her. He's acknowledging her beauty while he's also not just running in and trying to, trying to fulfill all of his fantasies in one moment. Godly sex in no way should ever be degrading or robbing from the person that you're engaging with. It's not, it should never cheapen the other person across the table from you, right? Godly sex is always gonna be considerate of the other person. People are, people are consistently asking, how far do you think is too far in the marriage bed? And I would say as far as you can go without one person feeling cheapened. But other than that, the Bible says it's fair game. Everything's on the table for you, right? I, I love the way that Eugene Peterson writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed, listen to this, must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights, Listen, that is such a good line. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or not. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it. And it's for the purpose of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again because Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. He's saying, like, he's saying that it's, it's not this competition. No one should be seeking selfishly in the marriage bed. And, and you know what? I've, I've just counseling several couples, talking to several couples. I have never met a set of couples who have the exact same sexual desire. Usually one wants it more and one is okay expressing their love fully, just you, having sex less. And listen, I, I know there's plenty of work. There might even be frustration in your own marriage. One of the things that our team has worked hard to do during this series is we've made a resources page on our website. I would encourage you, if you're needing help in this area, if you want to press in some more into this topic specifically, there are resources available for you on the website. There's podcasts to listen to, books to listen to, because I can't get into all of it now. But, but godly, you have to hear this. Godly sex affirms the person across from you and it's caring and considerate and tender towards the person across from you. Second, the third thing that we see 
we jump back over to Song of Solomon. He says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Okay, so listen, Lionel Richie, all night long, not your idea. You owe some royalties to Solomon, right? <laughs> Baby got back till the break of dawn? No, that, this was Solomon's idea. Not, what's his name? Who wrote Baby Got Back? Okay. Sir Mix-a-Lot. Mix That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Solomon's like, hey, I have plans that are going to go all night. Uh, can we just say, hey, hey, listen, this is in your Bible. Let me just remind you, your Bible's not boring. You're boring. Okay? <laughs> Bible's crazy. Bible's awesome. Bible is not boring at all. Listen, what's the next thing that we see about godly sex is that it should be passionate. Godly sex should be passionate. It's, it's affirming, it's tender, but godly sex should be passionate. Now, I want to be careful even as I say that because passion is not going to always just look the exact same. And I think we ought to ask ourselves, are you, are you measuring or evaluating the passion of your marriage based on what you've seen or are you measuring it based on what you've worked for? Because I'll tell you right now, porn is crippling passion in marriages right now. You are holding your spouse. You are holding either him or her. It's not just a problem for men at this point, by the way. It is a problem for women as well that are viewing porn and you are putting expectations on your spouse that they could never live up to, never live up to in a million years because it's not actually passion, it's acting. And so I, I ask the question for every person in the room, are the expectations that you're putting on your spouse, are those based on things that you've watched and that you've seen in movies that you've watched on porn or is it something that you've worked for? Because passion takes work. Passion takes work. My guess is the most passionate point in your relationship is right when you first got married or in the engagement right before it. And maybe not. Maybe you have a story that's kind of all over the place. But my guess is when you first met that spouse of yours and you started falling in love with them and you started getting the, the, the butterflies in your stomach, hand got a little sweaty when you, when you held hands for the first time. By the way, remember, God designed all of that as the process that he intended to create in human beings. Desire, attraction, the butterflies, like God put us into a word, world where we use our senses. He could have created us in a different way, but he created us with eyes to see, to be attracted to things, with ears to hear beautiful things, with skin to touch and experience that sensation. God designed sex for your pleasure, but also for ultimately his good. So remember this, godly sex should be passionate, but passion takes effort. It takes work. Why, why is it that as soon as we get married and we're five years in, 10 years in, 20 years in, 30 years in, that we don't send a nice text in the middle of the day anymore just to say I'm thinking about you? Why is it that we don't write a note at some point? Why is it that we don't try to make space for dating our spouse from time to time? If you want to have a passionate marriage, you're going to have to work for it. It's not just going to happen by default. Culture will tell you that it's happening by default, but culture is always going to be offering some cheap substitute to your spouse, whether that's porn, whether that's just the, the easy coworker at the office that is actually affirming and finally giving some encouragement and some acknowledgement to, the, to your spouse. So listen, married people in the room, what I'm trying to encourage you to is, is steward it. You've been given a beautiful relationship. Man, cultivate that relationship. Don't take your foot off the gas ever. Work for it. Put in the work. All good things that I've experienced in life require some work, don't they? So put the effort forward. Put the effort in. So it should be affirming. It should be tender. It should be passionate. And then it says, as we go, starting again, we'll pick it up in verse 10. He says, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. In verse 10, you don't catch it if you're just reading it, but what Solomon's actually doing is he's repeating something back that she said to him in their early courtship. 
The Shunammite maiden had said to Solomon, how beautiful is your love, my darling. Your, your, your mouth, your words, they're like a sweet fragrance. And what he's doing is he's literally calling back this refrain from something that she spoke over him. Here's the last thing that you have to know is that godly sex is secure. Godly sex is secure. What I mean by that is what Solomon's doing as he's reading these last few verses before they actually touch for the first time is he's, is he's going, you're the one for me. You have now been created in my mind and in my heart. You are now the standard for every other woman. I'm not gonna let anyone else dictate the standard of you. You're the person I'm looking towards. You're the apple of my eye. All these other women in the world, all these other options in the world, they, they like I'll tell you now right now, Katie is the standard for every other person that I see in my life. I'm not, I'm not trying to compare her to anyone else. I'm just saying, no, she, she's it. I'm focusing all my attention, all my effort, all my mental clarity is going towards her. And Solomon's saying that. He's saying, there's nobody else but you. It, like, I am yours. How tender, how sweet is your love, my bride. And that's something that all of us have to remember is that godly sex, because it is not just consensual, because it's not just a committed uh, sexual relationship, because, because it is a covenantal sexual relationship, where someone has said, listen, no matter what happens to you, I don't care if you get sick. I don't care if we're broke. I don't care if we inherit everything and we're so rich. I don't, I don't care what happens, you're mine. And I will be here for better or for worse, for sickness and health until death do us part. There's that commitment. There should be that security that is involved in marriage. Now, listen, I, I know what we think is we think that like uh, culture is always trying to press in and convince us that God's way is somehow less fun than, than the world's way. And you even think that, you're like, okay, man, this is what godly sex should look like. But, but how the world paints it is that Christians are prude and they're like, God requires your obedience, but he requires it at the cost of your fun. Do you feel that way sometimes? That's what the world's trying to tell you? It's like, yeah, you're just being obedient to the Lord, but you're not having any fun in your life. And I'm just gonna say, that's the devil speaking. All, if you, I, I would just invite any of you to research who has the most fulfilling and happy sex lives and it's Christians. Listen, in, in, a, in a study done, let me quote who it's by. So don't misquote this. Wheatley Institution. Wheatley Institution did a survey of all sorts of sexually active adults. And what they found was that highly religious couples, so the, weather, the way that they measured someone's religiousness, whether they're a highly religious couple, they looked at three main things, church attendance, prayer, and scripture reading. Women who were moderately religious in those three categories were 50% more satisfied in their sex life. Women who were highly religious in those categories were two times as more fulfilled in their sex life than their uh, non-religious counterparts. And if you think, oh my gosh, well, that's, that's just the women, you know, because well, whatever, women. Men in the same study, four times as more likely if they were considered highly religious to be satisfied in not just fulfillment, but in frequency of their sex life. If you study this, I promise you, what you're gonna find time and time again is nobody does it better than Christian people. Nobody, does, listen, if you, and if you want to be better in this category, there's probably three things that you could do to help, to get started. Go to church, pray, read your Bible. How crazy is that? Except it's not crazy because everything that we said last week is true. God's way works. God is not a prude. God is not trying to rob you from something. God created you with desires on purpose. God has put you with attractions and desires. And the main thing that you have to decide is if you're gonna live it out according to God's design or whether you're gonna, whether you're gonna bend his rules and go your own way. But God's way works. Don't, if you, even if you don't believe me as a pastor, even if you don't believe the Bible, listen to the data. The data all says that this, this is the demographic who has the best, most fulfilling and most frequent sex life is Christians. It's crazy. It's crazy, except that it's not. That's my point. 
My last point, for the last point of today's sermon, I actually want to go back to a lie. So we said, here's a couple lies about sex and sexuality that the culture is trying to present to us. That it's, it's just skin on skin. That you can, you can be forgiven and it doesn't cost you anything. And so just keep on engaging in sexual sin. And, and, and that it's, it's just like everything else in this world. And, and then we said, no, but here is the picture of sexuality. Here is what the picture of what the Bible paints as a healthy, vibrant Christian sex life. And now for the last lie, I just, I know so many people in this room. And this is who I was just especially tender towards as I was writing the sermon. Is there several of you right now in this room and you're saying, yeah, but I've, I've actually disqualified myself from that because of the mistakes I've made. Right, and you're thinking that this picture of sex, this idea of sex, this reality of sex, it's off limits for you because of something you've done. And that's a lie. That's a lie that the devil would love for you to believe. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if we back it up a few verses, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the word there is porneia, Okay, so that word encompasses all sexual activity outside of the marriage between a man and a woman. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, my urge and my reminder to every single person in the room, this matters. How you behave with your body is not detached from who you are spiritually. You have to bring both under the lordship of Jesus Christ because what he's saying is you will not enter the kingdom of God if you persist in this sin. But look what it says. He says there, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Paul's writing to this church in Corinth. He's writing to this church today to say, some of you have made decisions. Some of you have had made decisions made to you. Somebody has taken something from you. Someone has robbed something from you. And we all have some level of sexual brokenness. And he says, some worse, how, this is how some of you were, but you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Listen to me, the promise of Jesus today is that you don't have to live in shame for what's happened in your past. Don't let your past dictate your future anymore. If you have busted up decision-making, if you have had horrible things happen to you, I am so sorry that has happened to you. Please, you're, like, you're not alone in this church. I'm, there are stories that are horrific. They're haunting. Some of you, by, by decisions that you've made on your own or by decisions that other people have made for you, but either way, receive the cleansing work of Jesus Christ in your life today. That you, you do not have to live in a way where shame drives you into anything that you're going into from now on. Galatians chapter six hits on this. Paul's saying, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reach, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Here's the invitation for today. Regardless of your history, regardless of your past, start sowing righteousness into your future. I would love, we're gonna move into a time of communion. I would love today, if you're someone who's caught up in some sexual sin, I would love today by the power of the spirit of God that you would say, I'm not living that way anymore. I'm gonna start sowing seeds of righteousness into my future for my future marriage someday, for my current marriage that I'm in, for just my, for my life with Jesus. I'm gonna start sowing seeds in the right direction. I'm gonna start putting things in the ground that, that need to happen. I'm gonna let go of some things in my past. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move forward now. Don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season, you will reap. Listen, if you've made some terrible decisions, you may still reap some of the consequences of those decisions. 
but you can receive the cleansing work of Jesus today. You can be forgiven of all your sins today. Isn't that an amazing thing? I hope that everyone grabbed communion on your way in. We can take it now. I want you to know that if you're a visitor with us today, we don't, we don't ask that you're a member of our church to receive communion with us. We just ask that you're part of the church, as in you are part of the family of God globally. And so if you believe in Jesus, you've received that righteousness, then I'd invite you to come into communion today. A couple, a couple things in communion. I want you to take about five minutes here and just kind of evaluate where you're at spiritually with this topic, where you're at physically with this topic. And, and receive the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in his shed blood and his broken body for your life, that he has called you clean. Listen to me, he's called you clean. That's Jesus speaking. Receive his mercy today as we receive communion. Take a couple minutes, spend some time with the Lord, and I will come up and close this out in just a minute. If you're ready, would you stand? I'd love to pray for you guys. person that I want to pray for specifically first is someone who's just not married. They're trying to pursue a life of sexual integrity, doing exactly what God wants them to do. And it's, maybe it's difficult. Maybe it's simple. Maybe you're desiring or longing for a spouse and maybe you're not. I just want to pray a blessing over you wherever you are. And so if that's you, would you just kind of posture your hands out in front of you real quick? God, I just thank you for all the single people in our church. And I, I pray God that we as a church, would we, would we elevate the value and the role of singleness? And would we not teach a, a different version of their worth that's only to be found in a spouse. So God, even right now, I just ask that they would receive a special blessing, a special blessing of your presence on them right now, God. That they'd find fulfillment, they'd find purpose, they'd find all their value and their worth in you. God, would you meet them right where they're at? If they're struggling to follow with sexual integrity after what you have for their life, God, if they're struggling with temptation, or battling with sin, God, would you empower them with your Holy Spirit right now in Jesus' name to have victory over any of that. God, we pray that you'd keep them pure, keep them focused and dedicated wholly on you, Jesus, that they'd serve your kingdom, help build your church, help carry forth your mission in this world. Thank you, Jesus. I'd like to just pray for all the married people in the room. So if you're, if you're with the spouse right now, would you maybe just kind of grab their hand? We just pray that you'd bless the marriages in this church. Such a vital relationship that we hold. So God, I, I pray for I pray for sexual purity on the marriages in our in our house right now. That if there's people that need to repent or turn from something, God, would you empower them to do that? Would you empower us to, to pursue each other, to pursue our spouses, God, with passion? Would we engage with zeal in our marriages? Would we protect our relationships? God, we, we ask for just an overwhelming protection and blessing over these relationships that the, the enemy would not be able to get a foothold in between any of them, God. God, would you bless them? Would you draw them close to each other? I pray for this upcoming season of life, wherever it is that they're in life, whether they're empty nesters, they have young kids in the house, they don't have kids yet or unable to have kids. God, I just pray that you would bless your people today. Be with them, Lord. God, for all of us, for all of us, I pray that you help us make the decision not to gratify the desires of our flesh, but to live a life where we seek to glorify you. Help us, Lord.
Come Holy Spirit, we're in desperate need of you. There's no perfect person in this room. There's only a perfect savior that we sing to and we read about and we make much of and we try to aim our whole life at you, Jesus. We need you and we love you. We thank you for your cleansing work on the cross where you have declared everyone who has put their faith in you clean and whole and purified and just. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done on the cross. We love you and we're all in need of you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you.